Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. It's me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have Dillis Guyan as my guest. Dillis is a sales veteran who should have retired years ago, she tells me, and is passionate about selling and sales and all things related. Dillis, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are and who you serve? Yes, thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you for inviting me. My name's Dillis Guyan, and I guess if you look at my title on LinkedIn, it says International Sales and Marketing Leader, Coach and Speaker and Podcaster. I used to work with large corporates, but I think I'll have an opportunity to tell you more about that in a second. But at the moment, I work with SMEs, coaches, consultants, trainers, and service-based experts who sell to bigger businesses and want to attract more clients on a consistent basis. So that's who I am, Marcus. Excellent. So tell me this, you're clearly very passionate about sales and selling. Why do you love it so much? Oh gosh, I am actually. I call myself an evangelist and it actually stems back to when I was 16 and my father was self-employed. He was an electrical engineer and a very good one but he wasn't very good at bringing in clients. And so he actually went to the bank and they took a second charge because he was struggling with the peaks and drops of cash flow and and servicing all of his outgoings. But he still wasn't good at bringing in clients. And eventually the bank foreclosed and we had the official receivers in and they itemize everything. I mean, this is a nasty experience when you go through this. And I remember standing watching them. And then it got worse than that because he lost his business, he lost his vehicles, the employees lost their jobs, he lost his house. Ouch. And we lost our house and we had to go to a council house. Nothing wrong with council houses, but there is when you don't want to go. But the worst thing was that the stress just took him over the edge and he was a bit of a drinker anyway. And his behavior just became unacceptable. And we, my mother went off with us four kids to the council house. And he ended up in my father's garden shed for a week. And you know, I still kind of get a catch when I have to talk about this. So he was in my grandfather's garden shed for a week and then a caravan for three years. And then him and my mother eventually got back together. And he died in bed next to her at 52 from a massive heart attack. Wow. And this is why I am so absolutely committed. And for your listeners, not that I should have been retired years ago, but I certainly should be retired. (laughs) But I just, I'm so committed still to, if I can stop one person going through that, because what I see is there are so many SMEs particularly who are expert in what they do, and they're passionate about it, but they're not expert in bringing in clients on a regular basis. They just don't understand the steps. So I'm there like an evangelist, getting out to as many people, sharing those steps with them. Well, first of all, thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing that story. I absolutely get where you're coming from. Why do SME business owners get in their own way? I think that they're so wrapped up in being in the business, working in the business and doing all of the doing rather than growing the business and bringing in clients. And there's only two ways to grow your business. You bring in revenue and you reduce the outgoings. I think they start off being really excited and passionate and looking forward to this. They've got this vision of working as a self-employed person, running their business and having more freedom than they had when they were employed. But in actual fact, it's the other way. They're often working so many, many more hours, working so hard, but they're not learning these skills of bringing in clients. And they just get so, every week I see them, so frustrated and tired. And they've lost that love that they had initially and the excitement that they had for the business. It's interesting. Michael Gerber's got a wonderfully elegant, simple model of the technician, the entrepreneur, and the manager. And most SME business owners that I've ever worked with are technicians, generally pretty good at what they do, but they never go out and they find the business and then they don't build the team around them. Why can't they let go of the doing? I think they're scared to make the commitment. I think they're frightened to spend money 
to invest in support and building that team around them because they can't be expert in everything. And this is the thing. And I know I fell into that trap in my very early days. I just was doing everything on my own. I've got a team around me now, virtual. I don't have an office, but I've got a virtual team who are expert in what they do in areas that I'm not expert. And I think that these SMEs are scared to make that step to say, right, I'm actually going to pay for someone because funnily enough, when I made the decision that I was going to hire in people to do work for me, my business built even further. It gave me time to work on it rather than in it. This is really interesting. I don't know, have you read Marcus Buckingham's book, The One Thing You Need to Know? Yes. Okay. So one of the key themes or the key theme in there is your strengths are your development areas. Mm -hmm. And you should hire people and surround yourself with people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. Yeah. And for the listeners, if you haven't come across a book called Strengths Finder 2.0 by Tom Rath, there is a very useful psychometric profile that looks at your strengths and it helps you to identify your top strength themes. And it spews out the top five. When I did it about eight or nine years ago, I restructured all of my work around my top five strength themes. And I went from doing 70% of what I loved every day to 95 to 100% every day. Now, I've always loved what I do, but Monday cannot come around fast enough. I love my weekends, but Monday morning, I'm normally up at four because I cannot wait to get into the office and do the stuff that I was put on the planet to do. And A strength is something that you do well, you can't wait to do it. When you do it, you get great feedback. And when it's over, you can't wait to do it again. And if you haven't structured your business and your work around your strengths, chances are you'll find yourself doing an awful lot of the wrong things. And Dillis's point is absolutely right. Make sure that you understand the difference between being a technician, being a good accountant, a good software developer, a good trainer, and then making sure that you have the systems and processes in order to support you. So tell me this. One of the things I'm fascinated by is why people are unable to make those investment decisions. Is it driven by scripting, by scarcity? What is it that causes them to get in their own way? I think it's fear. I do. I think it's fear. I think the thing, I think there's an element also that oh, where people won't do it my way that is totally off kilter because you're right. It's about identifying your strengths. And even if you don't want to do the strength finder, and I've done that and I've done the Colby test as well, and that gives you an idea of where your strengths lie. But if you haven't done that, then just keep a document by your side and write down all of the things that you're doing and then rank them and say, right, Which ones do I absolutely love doing that have me in my flow, that make me feel great and feed my soul? And which are the ones that I hate? And so, for example, I hate data stuff. I hate technology. I don't hate. I'm really moving. I'm moving into the 21st century. I am. I always say technology and I are not best friends. We're just distant acquaintances. So I've outsourced that. I've got a bookkeeper. In the beginning, I kept my own books, for goodness sake. I used to have a big book and roll the lines in and all the rest of it. It was ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. There are lots of areas, particularly when you write down what you're doing and you can look at it and say, I need to find somebody good to do this and not be frightened to pay the money. This is really interesting because I think there's a dichotomy for a lot of business owners. I mean, 96% of businesses never grow beyond 10 people. And they do so because the owner keeps them that way. They keep Mm. them small. And you touched on it earlier, saying that sometimes they interfere, they can't let go. And that is problematic. But one of the challenges, I think, is why people are in business. Are they trying to create a business or are they trying to create a practice, a job for themselves? Mm -hmm. And If you aren't clear about why you're in business and what you're trying to achieve, chances are you'll just be a wandering generality being knocked around on the time. So 
what advice would you give to people who are running a small enterprise or a small business with a view to planning and identifying their purpose? I think that's a really great question. Identifying your purpose is really important. It's understanding your why. Simon Sinek, it goes back to his book about why. Certainly from my experience of working with SMEs is that they've worked generally in corporate and they've either had a hobby that they've got become very good at or they've skill in corporate that they think they can take out into the world. But very rarely do I see people sit down and say, what is my purpose? And I think to help with that is, and certainly for me, my purpose is about helping these SMEs to understand the steps to help them to grow their businesses and enjoy their life, and which has a ripple effect. There's always that ripple effect that goes on. And it's sitting down and saying, right, what impact do I actually have? And what does that mean to me? And what does it mean to my family? And so if they're working with corporates, and this is how I work with my SMEs, helping them to sell to corporates who've got a a bigger budget to be able to pay them what they're worth, it's looking at that and saying, what impact do I have in that corporate? Not just on the business, the department in which they're working, but also the individual. What is the impact? And it might even be that their purpose is greater than that. It might be that the impact on this situation at the moment that we have in terms of the ozone layer being affected and and that we're trying to save the planet and so on, it might be that. You might have a bigger purpose in terms of wanting to grow your business to such an extent that you can make charitable donations to something that's close to your heart. But without the purpose, you'd be like rudderless boat. And so I think that that has to be the foundation of what you do. That helps you then to say, right, if that really is my purpose, how can I grow my business to have an even bigger impact? So I'm not doing everything myself. I'm hiring in the right people and sharing the purpose because I think that's important too. And I call it keeping the red paint red. It's about keeping that message as red at the bottom as it is at the top or as strong at the bottom as it is at the top. Because often what happens is the message starts crimson red, it comes down, it's red, then it's pink, then it's white with a hint of pink. It's about bringing in your team, keeping the message strong, having them understand and agree the objectives of what they're responsible and accountable for. So you can't just hire people in and then very often they don't even get a specific task list. They haven't even got, here's the objective of your role and why you're important to this business. And then here are the KPIs that need to be agreed and the specifics of that. So very often it's not even that. And then the other thing on the back of that, and I know we're we're, we're kind of moving into the realms of leadership here, but of course an SME is a leader of the team once they start hiring. And I use a mnemonic that I actually got from my husband who used to be in the Marines for 25 years. And of course, they could not take the chance of it not being done right first time because there was lives at risk. And it was EDI. So if you are wanting someone to carry out a task, it's been agreed, then it's explanation, demonstration, imitation. Let me explain this to you. And if it's complicated, write it down because you should. This is a little aside, but as a business owner hiring in people, you should be starting to create an operations manual. So process lists of every task that you do, because if someone leaves, then you don't have to reinvent everything. You can just take them through the EDI with that page of your operations manual that they can then relate to and refer to. So it's explain it, then demonstrate it. So show them how to do it and then let them try it. And then I call this getting your thermometer out and put and monitoring and assessing with your thermometer and saying, how well are they doing? Don't wait until they've done the job wrong, you know, doing it really wrong. Just keep checking in and supporting them and helping them to the point where they can then do it, do it effectively and efficiently. And then those people can then become 
buddies or mentors for new people coming in. And this is how you can really grow your business. And if it's not going right, I've got another three-step mnemonic, I, I, I. I always want to go into song. I, 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 the beat is crazy. <laughs> Probably too old for most of your listeners. It's the incident impact improvement. So here's what I heard or saw. This isn't about hitting someone with a stick and saying, are you a stupid? Are you an idiot? It's not about that. It's here's what I heard. Here's what I saw. And then the, what the impact of that is. And again, it's that ripple effect of impact. And then here's what I would like to see as an improvement. And then finish off with some praise. You know, love your people. When you are developing your team and you're growing your business, love your people and care for them. Because your role as that leader of the business is development and working towards right first time for your clients. And this is really important. It's not about you. It's not about your staff. To grow your business, it's about your client being at the heart of what you do. Very interesting. I mean, you've touched on a number of areas that I want to elaborate on. So the piece around shared purpose, shared value is very important and everybody knowing what's expected of them every day at work. I think that's really key because ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And when there's politics, silos, fiefdoms in your organization, that then gets reflected by the experience that your customers have. And that tends to be a very messy and bumpy experience. Mm. Then you've got this other piece around making sure that everybody in your organization not only knows what's expected, but then you've documented that process. And I absolutely agree with you. Documenting your processes and your systems is crucial. One of the tips that I picked up from Mike Michalowicz is that the person doing the job should be videoed doing the task. And then you can turn it into written, audio, and video. And then every three months, review your processes to make sure that the process is still fit for purpose. And we've implemented this in one of our hotel clients. And as a result, say the reservations desk has someone off sick, someone from reception can come in, they can just click on the video, and three minutes later, they know how to do that particular task. So that's really important. So systems set you free. Yeah. And um, I, I think... I love that, Marcus. I, uh, I, I love that, actually, visually. I'd love to take credit for it, but it was Mike Michalowicz, the author of Profit mm-hmm. First. Now, the other thing that you mentioned, which I thought was really important, was that right hiring piece. And what I'm really curious about is why managers are so bad at recruiting. The evidence out there is that only 12% of unstructured interviews result in the right hire. And virtually every interview out there is unstructured, even if they claim it's competency-based. It's basically, do we like the person? And then we look at their experience, which basically says, Dillis might have been good in the past, but we don't know whether she was lucky, whether she was carried, whether she was just fortunate to be in the right time at the right place. And they're not predictors of success. So I'm curious, in your experience of working in corporate and with people who sell to corporate, what are the predictors of success in a sales environment in your experience? Right. Thanks for asking that, because it's just taken me right back to my days as regional director. I was regional sales director for Barclays Financial Services, where in fact, we had the best retention record across the country. Of staff um, or customers? For staff. So my sales teams. And we had a, a proper kind of fact-find process that we used to go through. And we also did competency-based. But it was about those additional questions that you asked. So you had your initial screening, you know, what are, what are your desire? What's your desirables for a, or what are the, essentials for a salesperson or a sales manager, because I had field sales managers too. And so what are your desirables? What are the essentials, but what are your desirables? So that kind of gives you your base kind of criteria for bringing people in. And then there was this questionnaire that we used to take them through, but it was the additional questions that you asked, because they could give you all sorts of numbers or achievements and so on. It was digging down. 
and it was amazing. I used to, they would tell me things and then I would ask the additional questions. So, okay, then, so tell me what was your conversion rate or how many people would, would you have appointments with in a month? Something of that nature. And the figures didn't add up. And I remember I used to say, forgive me, I just must be having a senseless moment here because I can't make these figures add up. So where are we going wrong here? And I know they wanted the job and they were embellishing. I understand that. But it's essential that you find the right person because it's not just right for you, it's right for them. Because if you start to put a wrong a round peg in a square hole, they will hurt. If they didn't do it before, it's, it's highly likely that they're not going to do it again. So I felt it was my responsibility to dig deeper and get specific examples. And if I could get numbers, that was even better around what they were claiming as achievements and what they had done. But it was also important because we were quite a value-driven region in terms of being client-focused. This wasn't about flogging insurance policy or a pension. This was about putting a financial safety net in place for individuals or families or businesses so that if their income stopped for whatever reason, they could maintain a standard of living. Or if it was a business, they could afford to bring some, you know, another key person in or just continue with the business. Because I've seen some horror stories in that area. The values are important as well. It's not just the black and white of what have you achieved, what have you done? It's asking questions around their values and then getting specifics because people can, they can gloss over at a higher level. They can sometimes gloss over at a mid-level, but when you get bottom level, it's hard to gloss over. It's hard to then continue because it just doesn't make sense anymore, but the truth will come out. So that would be my recommendation is that if you are not good at recruiting or you've not recruited then get a book or watch a video or go and get some training as to how to successfully recruit people I mean I had people moving house to come and work in our region it was it had that good a reputation wonderful there's a new book out by Lizette Howlett called The Right Hire Mm -hmm. Uh, a strong recommend and another book called Who I can't remember the author but both of those are strong recommends if you're looking to recruit. What we found is predictors of success are habits. So what we're looking for is a pattern of repeated behavior. Mm -hmm. And you have good habits and bad habits. So bad habits would be things like blaming, make excuses, not taking responsibility, avoiding prospecting. Good habits are good organizational habits, good prospecting habits, good questioning habits, good listening habits. And what you're looking for there are multiple examples in quick succession. And a very useful tip is when someone tells you a story about a sale, for example, then have them tell you the story backwards because they've learnt it forwards. But if it's not real and they're embellishing, what there will be is a cognitive dissonance and it will be very stuttered and staggered. Whereas if they've actually lived it, they can recount it relatively quickly backwards. Attitudes, beliefs and values are crucial. So a great question to ask when you're hiring is, so Dillis, when is it okay to lie to a prospect? And there is only one answer, and it has to come quickly, and that is never. Because these are people who are going to go out and represent you and your brand. And then the other piece is cognitive abilities, their ability to learn, adapt, bounce back, and to read the situation. And salespeople, in my experience, talk their way out of sales. I think one of the most important skills is genuine curiosity and listening. So I did have one other question to build on what you were saying earlier. Can I I just add something, just something that you just said there in terms of, because I agree with everything you've said there, the listening, it's about listening to understand, not just listening to hear. And so many salespeople will nod in the right place and appear to be listening, but they're thinking, about what the next question is. You cannot do that. Slow down and give yourself time. On the money. Slow down to speed up. And if you're listening to think for the gap so that you can fill it with the sound of your own voice, you're missing the golden nugget. So when a prospect finishes speaking, stay silent for three or four seconds 
before you ask your next question, because very often the silence will encourage the prospect to continue speaking. And Mm -hmm. that's where the real value comes. So, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I just wanted to pick up on that, just in case I forgot later on, because it's so critically important. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, tomorrow I'm interviewing Bob Giamanco, who is the VP of Sales for Echo, which is a psychometric profile that measures listening aptitude. Ah, interesting. Really interesting. And the other person that people should pay attention to is a guy called Dr. Mark Goulston, who wrote two massively important books. One is called Just Listen, and the other one is called Talking to Crazy. He specializes in suicide prevention. He's a psychiatrist by background. But those two books are must-reads for anyone in business. And frankly, if you're a member of the human race, they're must-reads. Now, I want to move on to the next area, which is money concept and self-concept. One of the things I've noticed is people leave a corporate environment where they're billed out at large numbers, and then they go into business for themselves, and suddenly they lose the confidence to charge the same as they were charging in the corporate because this script is running in their head that they've got lower overheads. Who are they to ask for that kind of money? Don't deserve it. Why? Why does that happen? And what do you advise your clients or how do you help them deal with that and neutralize that noise in their head? I think one of the ways to neutralize it is to look at the value that you bring. So I'll give you an example of this, actually. I did some work a number of years ago within a national chocolate company. And when I went in and using your words, was very curious and asked the questions and listened to understand. I discovered that because they weren't hitting target. And then when I dug deeper on on this, because I was doing leadership. So it was leaders of the teams. And because they weren't hitting target, the leaders were putting pressure on their team members. It created low morale and the attrition rate was quite high. On the other side, because the business wasn't making profit, the CEO had to go to, to the city and make a profit warning. And it's always asking the questions underneath. And so what did that mean? Well, it meant then that that shareholders were selling. We weren't attracting more people in. The value of the business went down. So what effect did that have? So it's always going down, always going down, always going down, and really getting deep into what that impact is. And, of course, they couldn't invest in new machinery and so on. So... I then look back at the attrition rate and said, tell me, how much time and cost is it to you to hire a new person? And we went through the process because HR had to put out an advert cost. They had to have the responses come in. HR had to spend time on that when they were neglecting something else. And they were under big pressure anyway, sifting through CVs, selecting, interviewing, hiring candidates and putting them through training and putting them back into this toxic environment. So we worked out how much it was per person. And also, of course, it was cost, loss of sales. I could go on, but I'm just giving you kind of a higher level here. And I said, so how much does it cost? And they told me, I said, and how many people are you losing a month? And then we multiplied that up. It was enormous. So when I came to talk about my solution, at the end, by the way, this is another thing, people talk solution or they talk product or service far too early. At the end, when I understood what the, what the real challenges were, then I was able to put a solution in that absolutely was a right fit, relevant to what was going on in their company. And then I was able to give my price. But because I had got the pound cost impact it was a no-brainer because I asked them, if you continue like this, what are the consequences? And they said, we can't continue like this. And so it was a no-brainer. And this is, this is I'm giving you this example because yeah. I could charge my real true worth because of the real huge value that they were going to get. Because when they hit their targets, the share price would go up because I also asked them, we stem the attrition, you're starting to hit target. What would that mean then to your share price? Would cost go up? And what could you do with that? And so, well, we'd be able to invest in new 
machinery, we could refurbish our stores, we could do and rehire, you know, hire some more. And so they sold it to themselves. But it was about it. So for that business owner who's worrying about price and thinking, oh gosh, you know, I can't charge this. Yes, you can. It's the value that you bring that allows you. You've got to reframe. I'm big into reframing your thought processes Mm -hmm. and see the value that you're bringing to your client. Absolutely agree with everything that you said there. And the problem here is that most people inadvertently sell selfishly and they also focus on the wrong end of the problem. I remember making a sale in back in 2007 to a shipping company over in Hong Kong. And what was really interesting was they paid me the money 12 weeks in advance. I told them I had a bad right hip, so I couldn't turn right on a plane, which mm-hmm. was quite fun. So I ended up going to Hong Kong on business class. And, business. <laughs> and when I arrived, they said to me, Marcus, we've really been looking forward to this three-day training session. By the way, what did we buy? Now, they had an incumbent who they'd raised the purchase order for, but they hadn't issued it. My wine at the Hong Kong club cost more than his three days training. And what was really interesting was we saved that business because in 2008, the recession really hit shipping and they were leasing out boats for 240000 a day. When the recession hit, they couldn't lease them out for more than $1,000 a day. So it was killing their business. But because they had another, they had a software arm to their business, they were able to survive and they're still in business today. But what's really interesting is that they don't need logic and education. What they need is an emotional attachment to why there is a problem. You hit the nail right on the head. When we teach people how to sell, we teach them to diagnose the real problem, the root cause and the personal emotional impact. If you don't do that, then you can't do the pain by numbers. You can't create a business case in their mind because if you're selling to a corporate, they now have to take this and go to somebody within their organization or a committee and get buy-in and sign-off and budget. And there's a finite pot of money, and everybody is vying for that finite pot of money. So if you as a salesperson cannot help your prospects understand the value, then you have no business being in sales. So take Delissa's advice, go to her training, come to mine, read some books. There's some really good books. There's a book called The Contrarian Salesman by Jody Williamson, which is a really good introduction to why you sell this way instead Mm. of the traditional way, which is basically show up and throw up, quote and hope and sell and run. And recognize that you have rights. In fact, let me ask you this. What are your rights as a seller? Are you asking me or are you asking your audience? Well, I'm asking the audience, but I'm asking you. What are your rights as a salesperson? I'm not sure which answer you're looking for here, Marcus. So let me just think about this for a moment. But I have the right to give my client or prospective client the opportunity to say yes or no, not right now. Very good. What else? <laughs> I have the right to, to discover where they are and where they want to be and uncover needs that they may, may not even know they've got. Fabulous. So this is a question I always like to ask in an interview as well, because I believe that we have the right to say no. We have the right to ask tough, difficult and insightful questions. I think we listen for insight as well as understanding. We have the right to charge what we are worth based on the value that we can deliver. We have the right to mutual purpose. We have the right to equal business stature. We have the right to be treated with respect. But if we don't know that we have rights, then we're going to abdicate them. Part of the problem I see, and this self-concept is really important, I I believe that we will only perform to the level our self-concept will allow. And as a result of that, if you put the customer on a pedestal instead of seeing yourself as their business equal, then chances are you will give away your power. And then that turns into a parent-child kind of relationship. Mm. And then you're there with your begging bowl, praying and hoping for some scraps. They have the problem and the commodity. Money is a commodity. Your expertise is not. Your expertise is scarce and valuable. I'm really glad you touched on that point, Marcus, because this is the thrust of what I'm helping SMEs to do. 
is to give them the confidence to sell to corporates. Now, when I talk about corporates, I'm not necessarily talking about international corporates. I'm talking about corporates, mid-sized corporates, small corporates, larger SMEs, mid-sized SMEs. And I think this is a self-worth thing as well, is that they sell to smaller businesses who've got small budgets. And when you're selling to smaller businesses with those small budgets, the decision maker is saying, do I take bring you in as a consultant or trainer or whatever, or do I take my kids to Disney? And I just can't help but think about my son-in-law and daughter who run a builder carpentry business. And he started 12 years ago. And in the beginning was working what we call now said with kindness, but with skirting board clients. He said, I'm just a chippy and I can only charge £25 an hour. That was his kind of mentality. I said, you're not a chippy. You are a master craftsman. You do bespoke kitchens, old conservatories. You are not a chippy. But that was where he had come from. But until we looked at them elevating the business to a higher level type of client who had the budget, who would pay them promptly, who valued what they did, who would give them repeat and referral business. He was stressed to death working at this lower level and people, late payers, you know, or people asking him for quotes and they could, he found out they had no money and he'd spent hours putting the quotes together. But it wasn't just a shift in his behaviours. It had to be this mental reframing of his value to allow him to elevate. And when we sat and we looked at, right, well, who are your best clients? Because I spoke to him one day and he said, I'm sick to death. I wish I'd just stayed employed because he was working with these lower level clients. And I said, well, have you any that you love working with? And he said, oh, yes, this, this, this. I said, come round and let's profile them. And let's look at who your best clients are. And then let's start and take that profile and say, right, here they are. Where do we find them? And then get into the shoes and say, without you, Drew, what are the problems and the challenges? What are the thinking before they hire someone like you? advice. And so we did all of that. And of course, this is a lower level because he, you know, he hasn't got a huge business. So I'm, I'm just talking principles here, principles of thinking. So once we were able to get in their shoes and identify where they could find them, they changed their marketing and they changed the copy. So they changed the message that they were writing. And now, last year, he was working with a film star. It's a secret, so I'm not allowed to say, but a film star from the Harry Potter movie. So he's no longer working at the bottom end. He's now got guys working for him. He's now looking for an operations manager, like project manager. He's got bands and he's loving, he's loving what he's doing and his work is fabulous. This then comes back to what we were talking about earlier, the difference between creating a job for yourself, a practice, and creating a business, an entity that will thrive and survive with or without you and allowing you to step back from being the technician. The key to this is learning that you can say no. What you say no to is more important than what you say yes to. Yes. And if you don't understand that, then you will be doomed to working at the bottom end of the pond, and you're never going to end up working with the bigger, more profitable fish. And the net result of that is you have to prospect like a demon all the time. Starting your business from afresh every month or every week or every quarter, you're working harder than you need to. When I stopped really focusing on trying to work with, because when I first started in business, I had the same kind of mentality and very quickly realized that if I work with someone who has a 200,000 or 500,000 pound a year budget for doing what I do versus someone who has a 5,000 pound a year budget, I have to do 100 times less prospecting. And I have to be honest with you, that's way more fun because the prospecting side, let's face it, you've got to do it. You don't have to like it, but you have to do it. Our motto in our business is do less but better on purpose. Yes. The unofficial motto is double the money for half the work. If you're not asking yourself questions like, well, what can I do to make my life simpler or easier? What kind of problems do I help people to fix 
that they will pay me premium for and value? If you're not asking yourself those kind of questions, you are dooming yourself a life of servitude. Mm. Can I just add another thing here, Marcus? There is a myth that the corporates only want to hire from other big corporates. It's an absolute myth. When I very first started my own business back in 2000, I had to decide who I wanted to work with. And I decided, because there's a bit of a backstory to all of this, but maybe that's for another day. And I had to decide who I was going to work with. And I decided because I'd been in financial services, I would work with blue chip financial services companies. And I literally, I put my business plan together, set my goals, put my business plan together. I was a single parent with two teenage children and I had to earn. And so literally used yellow pages and the telephone. And I just got on the telephone. And in the first month, I got a contract with Allied Dunbar. The reason that I was able to do that was because my mind was, I had earned a massive big salary in the corporate world. And I had to earn. I had to keep up, you know, pay our mortgage and do all of those things. In month one, Allied Dunbar, I then went on to work with Norwich Union, which is Aviva now, Barclays, Barclay Card, the big chocolate company that, that uh, I referred to. I've worked with St. James's Place. Then I've had other companies, big pharmaceutical companies that I started attracting. And I, I actually changed my business model about six years ago because I couldn't cope with all of the traveling because, as you rightly said, I'm not 27, even though I think I am, and working with SMEs now. But what I want to share with the listeners is the corporates love people like us because we can turn on a 20 pence piece. We are experts in what we do and we're practitioners of what we do. There's not all of the bureaucracy and the red tape. They can hire us in without and on a consultancy basis without paying the astronomical prices at some of the big corporates, but we're still being paid what we're worth. We're still being receiving that revenue. And so it's an absolute myth that the corporates don't want to work with people like us. Well, I agree. I think the biggest obstacle is the noise in people's head. And it's the scripting that tells them, I'm not worthy. They won't want to work with us. What right do I have to play in that space? I'm going to get found out, that imposter syndrome. And it's a huge mistake. A lot of my business comes from corporates. It's me and my wife within our franchise. Yeah, we're part of a bigger organization. We're the world's largest sales and sales management training company. But no one cares about that. The only person who cares about that is probably our marketing department. And from the prospect's point of view, they're buying from you. And what you've touched on there is the long tail. Chris Anderson talks about the long tail. And what's really interesting, I think there is a huge opportunity, particularly where people start to collaborate, because the weakness in large corporate strength is their numbers, because you have a product, a bell curve distribution curve, and you have 4% who can walk on water, 16% who are brilliant. That's the top 20%. Then you have the middle layer of mush. And then you have 16% who can barely wipe their own bottom and 4% who can barely breathe unaided. And if you are a small business or a medium-sized business, you're not going to be getting that top 4%. You're probably not going to get that top 16% either. You're going to get someone from the top end of the middle 60% layer of mush leading the sale. And then people from lower down doing the project. Now, Small organizations, individuals can club together. And what corporates are getting is people who are at the top of their game with a wealth of experience. Mm. As long as you guys understand how to collaborate, you've created a frictionless experience for the customer. And it's delicious, delightful all the way through. They will be getting people who are A players Mm. at the top of their game. And they will pay premium for that. Yeah. So let me move on to the other subject that I know is close to both of our hearts, which is management. I was listening to Jonathan Farrington recently, the editor of Top Sales World. He heads up the Sander Research Center and various others. And he was saying that 94% of sales managers worldwide are not qualified for the job. 
Why, why, why does this happen? And why does it persist, more importantly? I think there's the Peter Principle where, where people are promoted because they're good at sales. I think the recruitment process, generally, even if they're not, you know, recruiting internally, I think there is the recruitment process is a lack. And I also think that there is a lack of training. And this is both ways. I think there's a lack of training at leadership, and I think there's a lack of training as a salesperson. Whoever's leading a team, whoever the team are, I think there's a lack of of training there. But particularly in the sales world, 18.6% of salespeople leave their organization every year, according to Miller Hyman, and it takes 10.6 months to get someone fully effective. Now, if you haven't got a good manager, a good leader, leading these people, you're on a hiding to nothing. And I have an absolute deep belief. Nobody gets up in the morning and makes a conscious decision to go to work and do a bad job and get hit with sticks by their senior. And so I just wish, because I do a lot of leadership work, and one of the questions I ask them is, tell me, do you find that your team members do the job right first time? And I remember this lady particularly, Joanne, most people, by the way, say no to me, that they don't, but this particular lady, sure. She said, no, they certainly don't. She said, I tell them and they don't do it right. I tell them again and they still don't do it right. And then I bloody well tell them and I'm really cross. And she was, and I just quietly said to her, so whose responsibility is it then to ensure that they do it right first time more often than not? And she took a breath and she raised her eyes and she said, (laughs) I suppose it's me. (laughs) And that was such a breakthrough in terms of her and and most leaders that I work with. It's kind of an aha moment and, and I'm still shocked by it that they can't see that it is their responsibility to ensure that they are developing the people, that they're giving them the right training, but higher that it is the responsibility of those higher to ensure that the leaders have got skills because they're a completely different suite of skills Absolutely. being a salesperson. A, a manager, a sales manager has only two functions in life. Hire the best people and get the best out of them. Yeah. Everything yeah. else is gloss. And the challenge here is that most sales managers have been promoted from being moderately successful salesperson into management with zero training, zero onboarding, and being left to sink or swim. Yeah. So what they do is they do what was done to them. They do what appears to be logical, which is basically shout and scream and try and manage the numbers. You can't manage the numbers. The only thing you can manage is behavior. Yeah. They don't invest in training their managers, and their managers see recruitment as a chore, not the single most important objective that they have. And they also see coaching as something that's a nice to have. The research on this is really clear. Sales managers who coach their people consistently, so there's a cadence of coaching, regular, frequent, and also pertinent and relevant, Mm. with potency, protection, and permission built in. Those businesses have 86% more of their salespeople hitting quota than those who don't coach. You only have to look at in the world of sport. Absolutely. To to see how absolutely critical it is. I couldn't agree more. So first of all, thank you. I'm going to finish with two quick questions. The first one's slightly challenging. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise your idiot 23-year-old self what not to do, or advise them on how to avoid some of the grenades that you swallowed, uh, what would you advise her to do? Oh, 23. Now let me just cast my mind back. (laughs) It would be, I'm just trying to think where I was at 23 particularly, but certainly it would be, don't be frightened. Just, you know, JFDI, just flip and do it, but that's very generic. But value who you are and Charge what you're worth, but bring people in to support. Bring the right people in to support you in the areas that are not the areas of brilliance. And even when I think back to 23, that is something that I should have done. 
I can maybe come back another time and tell you about what I was doing at 23. Yes. So really value yourself. Absolutely. Don't sell yourself, but get help and be prepared to pay for it because the business income will come in. You know, people go, oh, I can't pay out that. But because you're working on your business and developing and bringing in ideal clients, not just any Tom, Dick or Harry, like Drew with his skirting board clients, look at who your best clients are, who you really want to work with Great and who, where you can work in, in harmony. Absolutely. Fantastic advice. Okay. One final question. Some books, podcasts, videos that you recommend people read, listen to, watch. Books that I'm reading at the moment, they're actually audio books, although I have the books on my shelf as well, is Jeb Blunt, Fanatical Prospecting, and Sales EQ is another one of of his. I love Jill Conrad, Selling to Bigger Businesses. I generally, I don't listen to many podcasts, but because I'm listening to audio books mostly, so I'm kind of on the spot with that, but we'll talk about yours, Marcus. (laughs) Pretty damn good podcast. I agree. Well, there you go. Dennis Guyan, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. Can't wait to have you back. And how can people get hold of you? Well, they can go to my website. That's dillisguyan.com. And that's D-Y-L-I-S, Guyan, G-U-Y-A-N, dillisguyan.com. On there, you can download 21 Surefire Ways to Find Your Ideal Client. Also talks about Drew in there, about Ideal Client. You could also scroll to the bottom of the homepage where you can book a 30-minute strategy session with me to identify where you are now, where you want to be in the future, and what are the challenges that might stop you getting there. You could join my Facebook group, Inspired Selling. It's a closed group, but free. And you can also email me at dillis at dillisguyan.com. I've also got my podcast, which is Inspired Selling. Wonderful. Dillis, thank you so much. Thank you, Marcus. It's been fab. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. You and I could talk about sales forever. (laughs) So thank you, Dillis. This is Marcus Cappy signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, and share. And if you have any topics that you'd like me to cover in future podcasts, email me at mcauchi, M-C-A-U-C-H-I, at sandler.com with podcast ideas in the subject line. And if there's a guest that you'd like me to interview, let me know. So thank you so much for listening. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. Take care now. Bye. Happy selling.